I want to welcome you once again to Providence Road. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors at the church. We are really glad um, that you are with us today as we continue on in this um, Gospel of John, walking through this book uh, passage by passage, and we find ourselves in chapter um, 16. And so let me pray for us, um, and then we'll jump in. Father, I ask in this time that we would that you would help us clear our minds, clear our, our hearts to allow your word to, um, to communicate to us, to um, connect with us, that your spirit would teach us this morning and prepare us for that. I pray as we look at your word this morning that it would change us, that we would believe that these are your very words. This is you revealing yourself to us humanity and you want to change us as a result of your uh, as a result as a result of us putting ourselves under the word this morning so help us in that way help us and make much of your son this morning it's in your son's name we pray amen so we find ourselves at the end of chapter 16 and this is the end of what um, we have been calling the farewell discourse the farewell discourse began um, really at the, at the beginning of John 14, some kind of push it back into John 13, but really for the last few chapters of this book and really the last three months or so, we've been in these chapters in the Gospel of John where Jesus has been talking to um, what was 12 with Judas leaving, now 11 of his disciples, preparing them for the time where he's not going to be with them. He's saying a lot of important and hard things to his disciples. And so uh, for the last several months, I've, I've said over and over, we need to work really hard to put ourselves in the place of these disciples, leaving, the, the, about to be um, separated from Jesus, and Jesus really trying to tell them and communicate to them as best as he can what is going to happen. And he ends this discourse today with some really good news. He ends it on a really positive, um, upbeat note, which we're going to get to, but he also addresses a question in what he talks about today that all of us struggle with. See, all human beings struggle with this question, and the question is, what do I do when trouble comes? Like, how do I react when pain and sorrow come into my life? And none of us in this room is exempt or will be exempt from facing pain and sorrow in our lives. And Jesus does this with two primary verses. And I have those verses up on the screen. I want us to see these. John 16, 20, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And then in verse 33, he says, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And Jesus is doing the same thing in both of these verses. He sets these kind of th these things up in pairs, right? We, in, in verse 20, you see, we have uh, we weeping and lamenting, and that will turn into joy. And then in verse 33, you see, you have tribulation and trouble, and that will turn into peace. Right? And so Jesus lays out this for us this morning, and what he's doing, he's actually giving us two lenses or ways to approach life, especially when it comes to suffering. You see in verse 33 there, he says, you will have tribulation or trouble, but I have overcome 
the world. Right? And if you take one of these lenses away, right, you have kind of the, the, the negative of pain coming into the world, then you kind of have the positive of Jesus overcoming the world. But if you take either one of these out, it tilts it out of balance in one way or the other. And here's what I mean, especially in the context of suffering. If you pull um, the pain and the suffering out of that equation, what we're going to fall into, and we have a tendency to do that, is to fall into naive optimism or sentimentality, right? You might, you, you, those of you who, who really have a hard time thinking about pain, thinking about suffering, you wrestle with, you, you, start, you start struggling when you even think about death and evil in the world. And when that stuff comes, you may distract yourself with entertainment or consumption. You might have a difficulty talking about death. You really want to stuff down feelings of sorrow and lament, especially in, 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 the, in the environment of the church, because church is supposed to be places for happy thoughts, right? In all joy, in all happiness, right? So we want to kind of push those negative things down. And this is why we try our best to move those, allow create environments here where those things can come forward if they need to be. Josh, the last several weeks, Josh has been up here and he started the service with some space to lament by just kind of saying, hey, when we're calling you to worship, it's okay to not be okay when you come in here. It's okay to be sad. It's okay not to feel all the good thoughts when you come into church. You know why? Because that's reality. That's the world we live in. And so those of you who lean towards um, just kind of this naive optimism, you need to be aware of that. We need to be honest that there is real evil in the world, and you need to hear Jesus when he says, you will have trouble. That's a promise. He says, you will have trouble. If you're an unbeliever here, you, you don't follow Jesus, maybe this is your first time in church in a while, and, and I, I hope you listen this morning because I hope you get a, a good picture of what biblical Christianity is, just a slice of it this morning, because oftentimes you will hear this, like, if you become a Christian, like a, a, a switch flips, and all your problems go away, and all your sorrows go away, and that can't be further from the truth. Becoming a Christian doesn't take those problems away. It helps us deal with the issues. It gives us a different perspective on those issues, but it doesn't take away hardship. So that's one side of the balance. The other side of the balance is falling into cynical pessimism. Like if you pull away the, 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 the truth that Jesus has overcome the world, like then this is kind of where I fall most of the time. Most of the time I lean towards being a pessimist, and I know there's evil in the world. I think about it a lot. I think about death. Like, right, I'm, I'm aware of those things, and I kind of walk through the world with a little gray over me, and I don't see as bright of colors as a lot of people do. And I, I would love to see more of those colors and have more of those things. I need to hear the fact that Jesus has overcome the world. I need to fight for joy and peace and all those things that Jesus actually promises us, no matter how hard the world gets. I need to have confidence in the promises of God. And we need both of these things. We need the, the reality of evil in the world, and Jesus tells us it's coming. And we also need this, this, this truth that Jesus has, in fact, overcome the world. And that's really what we're going to talk about today. And here's our thesis statement for this morning. Just kind of gives us an outline here that Jesus has told us these things so that when life gets hard, whatever that looks like, we can have peace and joy through his victory. And we're just going to take that apart, right, through this morning. Life gets hard. We've already talked about that. 
And when life gets hard, we can still have peace and joy in this life. How do we do that? Jesus tells us, because I've overcome the world. This is why you can have these things. But we're also going to spend some time on how does this work? Right? How, does this, how do we apply this knowing that, knowing that we're going to face hardship, knowing that we're going to face sorrow? How do we actually apply it to actually be able to live and flourish in this world as disciples in the midst of pain and suffering? So let's look at verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? You can almost hear them whispering. So what, what's he talking about? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father? So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. And maybe some of you, when you read that, you're like, what in the world is Jesus saying here? They are confused. You may be confused. That's okay. Jesus knows that we're confused and they were confused by this. So he says this in verse 19. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you, you're asking yourselves? And he repeats it to make sure. What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Okay. So he makes sure. Is this, is this what you're confused about? Okay. Verse 20. Truly, truly. This is when Jesus says truly, truly, we know to pay a little, like lean in a little bit closer because something important is coming. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. These are strong, kind of sad, weighty-filled words that Jesus chooses to use. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. So here's what Jesus is saying. The world is going to celebrate when Jesus, and Jesus is talking about, remember, this context, he's He's about to be arrested. He's about to be tortured. He's about to be put on a cross. He's about to suffer extreme pain and die on the cross. That's, and the disciples are going to be around for all of this, right? They, they get out of there, and we'll talk about that here in a second. But they're around for this. He's preparing them for this. But he also says the world will rejoice. Like how, how could that be? Well, the, the, the powers that be, right, the world that we've kind of talked about the last couple of weeks, this definition of the world, the, th the, the, the values and philosophies are, that are against the way of Christ, those in power that, that, that his influence is threatening them, they're going to be glad. They're going to be, Jesus is out of the way. They don't have to worry about Jesus anymore. So in some sense, they will rejoice that Jesus is gone. But their immediate context, context is that Jesus is leaving them. And we have things to weep and lament about as well. So this is how it extends, the application extends to us. Yeah, we're not in that same exact position as those disciples. But Jesus is saying this to us as well. When you weep, when you lament, your sorrow will turn into joy. And then he gives us this great illustration in verse 21. It's helpful when Jesus gives the illustration. You know it's going to be a good one, right? When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow... Because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So imagine this, right? We all know this, those, especially those of you who've been around um, uh, women who are giving birth and who have given birth, right? Getting to hold the baby the first moments after a birth doesn't take away the pain. It doesn't take away the pain that just happened. But it, it, it fades into the background. You almost forget about it in that moment, so I've heard. 
um, when you're holding the baby for the first time, right? And if you ask any mom who's delivered a baby in that moment, hey, would you love to go back and like relive that pain again? Like, no, I'm good. Like, I got, I'm holding my baby. I'm good. I don't need any more of that anytime soon, right? The, the result of what, is, what she has gone through far outweighs the pain. So there's not a lot of, I haven't been into a lot of hospital rooms where moms who are holding their newborn baby um, have been grumbling about how much pain they've been in. Now, they are in pain, but this little thing far outweighs the pain that they've just felt. And no, no woman's going to say, hey, can I just go back through that whole birthing process um, again? So, so no one ever, right? Like she would not go back through that just for the sake of the actual birthing process. It's what came out of it was so important, right? This is why Jesus is shamed. The, the, when, when a mom has this, she goes through that, and there's something that is given to her and the family, right? So he says in verse 22, so also, so now he's connecting it back this, to this illustration, you have sorrow now. With I'm, I'm coming, I'm, I'm about to be arrested, I'm about to go to the cross, but I will see you again, resurrection, and your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, there it is again, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. And Paul, Paul, the Apostle Paul, leader in the early church in his writings, he has this kind of mantra that he kind of says in different ways throughout his writings. But in 2 Corinthians 6, he says this, I am sorrowful, but I'm always rejoicing. And that should be the mantra of most Christians, right, or of all Christians. Sorrowful. This world is broken. There's pain in this world. But always rejoicing. The biblical writers never say that pain won't exist, that we won't experience sorrow. That is not in the scriptures. They say that in our sorrow, in our weeping, we can rejoice. We can tap into this well of joy that's available to us by being united to Christ. The prophet Isaiah, throughout his book, talks about this well of joy that as followers of, of, of God in Isaiah, but for us, followers of Jesus, can tap into when things get difficult. And in this situation, Jesus is specifically referring to the resurrection. Like, when you see me again, you will rejoice. He's just trust me. It's going to get hard. It's going to get dark. You're going to get be scared. You're going to be afraid. But I promise you, when I come back, you're going to be rejoicing. And you're going to understand a lot of things then. So the question for us is, when we suffer, do we drink from the well of the joy that's offered to us in Christ? Do we go to the well of joy? Do we go there instead of stuffing it down, instead of medicating, instead of like make, pretending like it doesn't exist, consuming more, finding something to entertain us? Or do we go to Jesus and go to that, that well of joy that's available for us? And it doesn't necessarily take away the sorrow doesn't necessarily take away the pain, but at least it gives us an eternal perspective. Joy is the fruit of the Spirit. The, the Spirit produces that, that fruit, that joy in us when we drink from the well of joy. When we center our eyes on Jesus and the gospel and the resurrection, then the Holy Spirit produces joy in us. And once again, if you're here and you don't follow Jesus, I just want to say that this joy that Jesus talks about, he says, no one can take it away from you. 
It's my belief that this joy that Jesus offers is the only joy that can't be taken away. Every other kind of pleasure, happiness, joy, whatever you want to call it, can be taken away in this life. It can be. It can be ripped away from you. But this joy that Jesus speaks of can't be taken away, even in the midst of sorrow and pain. This is what he's saying here. Now, he continues on, and he connects the experience of joy to prayer. This is really important. Practically, at the end, we're going to talk about prayer for a moment. But listen to what he says. Go back to verse 23. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now, we can spend a lot of time talking about what does anything mean there. And when we say we can ask God for it. If we, if we look at the totality of Scripture and, and, and interpret this verse in light of all the other Scripture, we know that that anything doesn't mean actually literally anything. It means as you are following Jesus and your desires and your heart aligns with him and you're thinking about his thoughts and understanding his purposes, then asking it within the context of that, he will give you what you want. And, and he says in this context that you will receive joy and that your joy will be full. That there be, may be other things we need to do and create environments in our heart, in our lives where we experience joy. But it seems, it seems that Jesus is saying that it will always be filled with prayer. If we are going to experience joy, prayer will be a part of our lives. That's what he's saying here. There'll be, again, there'll be other things too that kind of give us joy and how we um, set up our lives. But prayer will always be a part of that. When he says, in Christ's name, it's just we, we remember that when we pray, we're doing this as, as people who are united to him through his work. We're united to Jesus. We belong to him, right? We're unified with him, so when we pray, we're praying in him, right? We're connected to him, and it's important for us to remember. Let's look at verse 25. And I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I no longer will speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I have came from God. Verse 28, I came from the Father, and I have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. One thing to pick up here in verse um, 27, he says that the Father loves you, right? It says, for the Father himself loves you. I think oftentimes we need to be reminded of this because we can get, fall into this trap of thinking that God is the one who's angry with sin, and then Jesus comes in to save the day and save us. Therefore, Jesus is the one that's the true hero of the story, and that is not true, right? The Father himself loves us. Jesus only does what his Father is directing him to do, so therefore, the Father's plan was to send Jesus to do what he did on our behalf. Therefore, the Father loves us, and he's, he's filled with grace and mercy towards us. So we shouldn't only think of God the Son, Jesus, loving us. We should know and remember that God the Father loves us, too. And in verse 28 here, he is as, as clear and direct as he's been with his disciples about what's going to happen. He's telling them clearly what he's going to do. And theologians have looked at the construction of just this verse, and it's really fascinating. And, and they talk about it's, it's a verse that's shaped like a V. There's four movements of this verse. And one author and, and pastor named, by the name of Paul Miller wrote a whole book called The J-Curve based off of kind of this idea. Um, but just look at verse 28 there on the screen, the last verse here. There's four little statements. 
And if you, if you start up here, like in the top of a V, it says, I came from the Father. So Jesus incarnates himself from heaven, comes down. I've come into the world. That's number two, right? So he's in the world. And we know what happens to him in the world. He's, he's mistreated. He's tortured. He's arrested. He did nothing wrong. He was perfect. He's humiliated. He dies on a cross, a horrific death. So he comes to the Father. He comes down to earth. And look at the third one. And now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. So there's this V of dropping into sorrow, dropping into our pain and suffering, going through, um, going through pain and suffering, and then on the other side, he's, he, he rises from the dead and ascends back to the Father. And this is called a, a, a V construction or a J curve that one author referred to it as. You see the incarnation, the suffering, Jesus, his resurrection, then his ascension, and then his exaltation back with the Father. And this is hardwired into God's plan. This is hardwired even into our lives. Death leads to life. Suffering leads to joy. We see this in the Beatitudes when Jesus is preaching. The poor shall become, um, the, blessed, the blessed are the poor, right? Blessed are the meek, going down in order to come up. In John, we saw unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it can't produce more siege and it can't produce more fruit. Peter says this in his epistle, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Jesus tells his disciples and he tells us, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. But there's a pattern here that's hardwired into our lives and into the world based off of what Jesus has done. When we get to verse 29, his disciples said, ah, light bulb's going off. Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. So verse 28, something went off in the, in the disciples' minds here. Verse 30, now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Verse 31, Jesus answered them. Do you now believe, and I almost think him saying it like that, do you now believe, guys? Like kind of with like a, a, a half smile on his face, a little sarcastic. I don't think Jesus is speaking um, like sternly here. I don't think he's being, um, trying to, you know, getting like angry in this moment with them, right? He's, he's, I think he's very pastoral, but he's also kind of realistic. Really, guys, are you sure you get it? Are you sure you, you're going to react to this the way that you think you're going to react? Then verse 32, behold. The hour is coming, indeed it has come, like we're hours away, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. You're going to desert me? You're going to leave me alone? Me, the guards, the executioners, you're going to leave me alone. Yet, he finishes the verse, yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. Jesus is so pastoral here. Disciples think they understand him. But Jesus gently corrects them in this moment. This is a good lesson for us. Like, they have the intellectual belief. Now, some, some light bulbs are going off in their mind. They're getting it. They're putting the pieces together. But that is not going to lead to the behavior, right? The intellectual doesn't automatically lead to the behavioral. And we get that in our lives all the time. There's something that happens, has to happen inside of us with what we've heard, with those intellectual facts, we have to meditate on it, and we have to think about it, and we have to internalize it so that it will actually change the way we live. And the disciples have not had that time yet. They've not had the time to do that. And then verse 33, 
I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, or be happy, be joyful. I have overcome the world. Jesus had told us we've had, we'll experience joy in the first part of this passage, and now he tells us we will have peace, joy and peace. And he is referring, remember, to his resurrection. He's like, you're going to see it. When I, 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 this is the sign that I've overcome the world, conquering sin, Satan, and death. When I come back from the dead, you will know that I am victorious. You will know that I've had victory over those things, and I've overcome the world. Remember, John, the writer, is, this is 50 or 60 years after these events that he's writing this down, and he's reflecting on this. I'm sure he's had so much time to reflect on what Jesus said here than the events that would ha- happen in the next two or three days, and he's reflecting on these events. And he's piecing this together, death, that Jesus' death is going to equal sorrow, and his resurrection is going to lead to joy and peace. And you can think of the little time period between Good Friday and Easter, um, it's, it's like a, it's a microcosm or a, a little picture of what our world is like. Right? We're going to go through suffering. That suffering's temporary. We're going to go through pain. That pain is often temporary. Jesus was in the grave for two days. The resurrection is for all eternity. He's, he's, he was alive at the resurrection. Now he's alive today. He's still alive as a result of the resurrection. Troubles may come, but they pale in comparison to eternity. But how hard, is this, how hard is it for us to believe this in the moment, right? We can believe this. We can even be sitting there with Jesus saying, I have overcome the world. Take heart. And we would still have trouble in moments of trial, tribulation, sorrow, and pain, I think, believing what Jesus is saying here. When we get the terrible news from the doctors. When you have children who aren't loving the Lord. Or maybe turn their back on the Lord. Maybe it's trying to get a um, certain job, or maybe you get, you, you get turned down for a job, or maybe you let, get let go from your job. Fill in the blank there. Whatever it is, in that moment, we all struggle to believe that phrase, I have overcome the world. Last week, a, a friend of mine's grandmother um, passed away, and she was in her 90s. And um, she had lost her husband many years before. And my friend um, said that, um, the last several years, she just had been waiting patiently for God to take her home. Like it's just one of those situations. I'm sure that you've heard somebody or knew somebody. They've lived their life. They love Jesus. They've kind of had all the world that they need, right? And they're just like, "Take me home. I'm done. Take me home. I know something's better there. I've had people that passed on before me that are there. Just take me home." But how can we get to that place, most of us who are younger, I get probably all of us in this room younger than 90, mid-90s, right? How can we get to the place that she was able to verbalize these things and actually believe them? Like just die because she, peacefully. She was ready to go and God brought her home. We have to remember there's nothing wrong with the promise of Jesus, right? This promise is true. It's from Jesus' lips. The problem is often our belief, our believing these promises. And Jesus is trying to get his disciples here to to relearn and to grow in in, in their self-awareness and trying to understand what is happening. Can you imagine them saying, we believe? And Jesus is saying, I don't think you do. And then he's saying, you're going to be sorrowful, but it's going to turn into joy. And they're like, but we believe, Jesus, we believe. And he's like, it's coming, trust me. And then it happens. Think of all the reflection that, that Jesus is wanting to get them ready for before it actually 
happens. This is why I started off with those two kind of those two ditches we can fall into. Are you a um, naive, optimistic person as you see through this lens, or are you a pessimist? And we need to have both lenses when we see the world and we interact with the world. And we remember the whole point of John writing this is so that we might believe. John 20 says, I'm writing all these things. I've wrote in this whole book that you may believe in Jesus and who he is. So even what we're reading today, it's so that we might believe, so that we might put our faith and trust in him. And the best proof that this is actually true and, and, and real and it has major implications for our lives is the disciples themselves. Right? Think about we're reading this, the, the, these, these narratives and these things that happened to the disciples 2,000 years and people have been reading, reading them consistently for the last 2,000 years. And these, these disciples embarrass themselves, right? And they're writing about it, right? Like John's outing himself by writing this book, by writing this stuff down. Like, they're, they're all gone when Jesus is hanging on the cross. They are gone. They are scared. They are deserted. They have left. And then something happens that Jesus rises from the dead, and all of a sudden... Everyone changes. They change into these bold, courageous preachers of the gospel who will die for, will die for their faith. They'll give up everything to follow Jesus in a matter of days. This changes. What happened? Resurrection. There's something about the resurrection that changed them forever. Changed them completely. So if you're in this room and you're struggling and you feel defeated and down upon yourself... Know that Jesus knows. That's why Jesus said, you left me alone, and I went to the cross alone. And he knew that he was the only one who had the capability of going to the cross. That's why he did it alone. He was with the Father momentarily, but then he was separated from the Father on the cross, we know. So he was actually alone, and he did that for the sake of sinful human beings like you and I. To bring us back into a relationship with God. So no matter whether you're a Christian in here or a non-Christian, we need to remember that Jesus died for people who were inadequate in these areas. We're inadequate. We're inadequate to face our fears. We're inadequate to handle our sorrows well. So we need to look to him, not try to muster up some strength or some technique or some, like, five steps. Or what, what, we need to first go to the cross and know in the resurrection and know that Jesus is alive. He wants to help us through our pain. He wants to help us through our trouble. And they preached with such boldness and confidence after this. Here's my kind of concern as we kind of move towards some application. My concern is that um, I lived for 17 years in this city in this context before I became a Christian. And I've lived here for 19 years since I became a Christian. Here's my concern with kind of the, the brand of Christianity that's around us. Right? It's, it's this, like, this, this Christianity that, is, is, uh, that doesn't have much of a foundation. Right? We live in Norman, Oklahoma, fairly affluent area. We're highly educated for the most part. I mean, it, we're, we're next to OU. So we can kind of accomplish our goal. The goals we want to accomplish, we can kind of accomplish them. Like we have the resources needed to live pretty good lives. And that's what scares me is we don't, need we don't think we need the foundation that Jesus wants us to have. So our foundation is kind of built on sand. What exposes that quicker than anything? Pain, sorrow. Tribulation, death, hardship, that will expose our foundation quicker than anything. 
And we're often, I've seen this over and over, we're not often prepared when those things come into our life because we haven't actually, we don't have the lenses of being real about evil and death. So what do we do? We panic. We leave the church. We leave the faith. We, we, we try to consume our way out of feeling uh, bad or that situation. We blame something else because it could, all of those things, because we don't have the foundation and have a real view of pain and suffering that Jesus wants us to have. To admit, hey, I'm messed up. I'm going through something really hard right now, and I don't know what to do. I can't think my way out of it. I can't pay my way out of it. I can't behave my way out of it. Help me. And that's exactly where God wants us. That's why the church is is a place for broken, sinful human beings that are all trying to get to where we want to go. And we need to be honest with suffering and pain comes into our lives. And I don't think we often see joy and peace, the things that Jesus wants us to have, in trouble. We see those things as, as kind of opposites, or they get in the way of each other. And they're not at odds with each other. Jesus has actually put them together here. We can have joy. We can have peace in the middle of suffering, in the middle of trouble. So my thought is, what if we had this view of suffering where we expected it? Like we knew it was going to happen. We knew the world we lived in. And when we were able to, the, the, the best illustration I can think of, my, my uh, seven-year-old and I, we've been fishing a lot lately, so um, throw that bobber out into the water. And that bobber is meant to stay above the water, right? But it bobs down, and that clues fishermen in on, wait, there may be a fish biting. But just take that bobber. That bobber is meant to come back up to the surface, right? That's the same thing with our faith. Like we're, the, 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 the fact that Jesus has overcome the world, it allows us to come back up to the surface, so we don't panic when we go under for a minute. We don't panic when things get hard for a few minutes. We trust because Jesus has us, we're going to come back up to the surface eventually. And if we're prepared for that, we can, be, we can face those things head on. I've said this before in a sermon I know I have because I think about it a lot, but John Piper, um, a, a pastor that a lot of people, especially my age, have, have benefited a lot from. John Piper um, tells one of the things he says, pastors, preachers, um, he says either your primary job or one of your primary jobs is to prepare your people for death. Prepare people for death well. Just a kind of a somber way to say that, but he, he's saying this. He's saying give your, pick, give your people, create an environment where there's, there's some reality to what's going to happen in the world. And then preach the gospel and the resurrection like crazy because that's the answer for it. And that's what Jesus is doing today. As we go into a few application points, I want to read 2 Corinthians 4. This is from Paul I think this is, Paul is reflecting on these words when he's writing this. It's almost word for word, kind of this idea of what Jesus is trying to communicate. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. The Spirit's doing something. For this light, momentary affliction. And we know Paul, Paul's afflictions weren't minor. I mean, he was stoned, he tried to, he was almost murdered several times, shipwrecked, almost drowned. I mean, Paul was not a man who lived a cushy life. And he's saying, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Jesus, the gospel, our union with him, God's sovereignty, all those things can be packed into the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're here today and gone tomorrow. Our stuff, our consumption. James says our lives are like a mist. Just they shoot out and they're gone in the, in, the, in the scheme of eternity. 
for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The last forever. This joy, this peace, this relationship with God the Father through Jesus lasts forever. And we need to keep our eyes on that when we're suffering. And we will suffer. And I'm not minimizing that suffering at all by saying that. Hopefully you see that we're actually embracing that suffering a little bit so we can deal with it in a healthy way. And we can flourish in the midst of our suffering as disciples of Jesus. So here here are three quick things, I think, as application points. Um, If you're hurting, especially if you're in this room hurting, you need to think about the resurrection. You need to think about the resurrection, exactly what Jesus was calling his disciples' attention to um, here, the resurrection. And we live in light of that. We live in the light of the resurrection daily. Like we're, we've, we've died with him, Romans tells us. That, 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 that V or that J, we've died with him. And our lives are hidden with him, but we've also been brought to, back to life spiritually with him. And we'll, you, we'll be united to him for all eternity with him in the presence of God. So maybe all you have at this moment is to hold on to this truth. And maybe you don't even believe it. But know there are people around you that believe it. There's a church that believes it. And maybe you just need to hold on for dear life until your, your faith catches up a little bit to this promise. Because this is a promise. Okay? The second, um, joy. Pursue joy. Oftentimes I think we think joy is more of like the caboose or it, it'll, it'll come along as we do certain things. And that's some degree true, but I think we need to put joy more out in the front and pursue joy. If we pursue joy, a lot of other things are going to fall into place. Our prayer life probably gets better. Our time in the Word gets better. Our relationships get better. If we say, I'm going to pursue joy, joy that is spoken about in the Scriptures. Pursue joy. And a lot of other things will take care of themselves along the way. And lastly, if you are joyless and there's no reason for it, like, I'm just not feeling it. I'm really pessimistic. Nothing's really bad happening. I'm not going through pain and suffering. How's your prayer life? I think we've seen from this passage, Jesus connects joy to prayer in a very direct way. I don't think it's necessary an equation, like we start praying and automatically we start feeling joyful. I'm not saying that. There's something unique about prayer, communing, communicating with the Father, communicating with the Son and the Spirit, and listening and talking and having that ongoing relationship, that all of that's prayer. And that is what brings joy. It's definitely not less than that. We must have prayer if we're going to have joy. And Jesus is saying here at the end, what, what more must he do to earn your trust? Right? He, overcame, he overcame death. He conquered sin, Satan, and death. He, he rose from the dead and is still alive. What must he do to earn your trust? And that's what he's saying to the disciples there. He's proven himself. So let's trust him. In this context, um, think about it. For them, it's Thursday, Friday. Good Friday's coming for these disciples, right? And for us, maybe you're in the middle of Friday. Maybe you're in the middle of a Good Friday season. Look ahead to Sunday. It's coming. Your, your resurrection, your, your curve, your V out of that's coming. Look ahead to that. But also, if you're in the middle of your resurrection of that Sunday now, know there's probably another Good Friday coming. How are we going to prepare for that? How are we going to be ready for suffering and sorrow when they come? Let's pray. Father, we love your word. I love that you won't let us get away with pretending like evil doesn't exist or kind of pushing it under the rug or not wanting to talk about death. You won't let us do that. We're thankful for that. 
you're realistic about that. But you're also, you don't leave us without hope. You don't leave us up to our own devices to try to figure out how to be joyful, to figure out how to have peace, figure out how to, how to have any sort of joy in the midst of our suffering. You give us the path that leads to joy and peace. You've laid it out from us. And it starts with belief. It starts with belief and following you and trusting that along this path, you are going to provide peace and joy. And we see both of those come together in your word. And we need to have both of those lenses. We need to have both of those lenses as we follow you in this world. So help us, Spirit. Help us follow you in thinking about what you've said to us in your word today. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.